Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a sixth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. And I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high redshift universe through quasars, both theoretically and observationally. You're listening to episode 78. There's more air out there. (laughs) In our last episode, before we went on summer break, we talked all about exoplanet atmospheres being discovered and probed using the James Webb Space Telescope. And then we parted ways for the summer. Sabrina, of course, got her scuba license, but then decided the gear wasn't worth the hassle and became a world-class freediver, holding her breath for over 20 minutes. Kirsten briefly became the fastest human on the Earth by summoning Kayambe, a volcano in Ecuador, before she then returned back to her regular speed rotating self. And I thought for sure I was ready to free solo a pebble, but it turns out I'd rather go rope grouping instead. I still had a great time, though. See, then we all came back from our summer adventures, and what did we find? Astrobytes had published not one, but two new bites on using James Webb to study exoplanet atmospheres. At the risk of making this podcast all about planets again, (coughs) Melina, (coughs) we're going to do an unplanned second episode all about using JWST to discover and study exoplanet atmospheres. Okay, but for real though, what actually were the highlights of your summer, you guys? Okay, I have to actually make a correction because it's winter in Australia, but... (laughs) (laughs) i actually did get to experience a bit of summer in europe was probably going to greece what about you kirsten nice so i got to go to two different conferences this summer one in portugal and one in france and i found out that i really enjoy port wine Ooh, interesting what about you will It's a little lame, but I made really good progress toward my dissertation. That's amazing. I also had some fun weekend (laughs) trips with friends and family, but man, was it good progress. That's a lot more than what I've done. (laughs) Yeah, and you're going to be thanking yourself come winter in a few months, like, glad I got this all done during summer. Exactly. Once I defend, then I can go on all the trips I can possibly imagine. But from now until then, it's going to be work, work, work. All right, so in episode 77, we did intro questions about studying exoplanets using James Webb, but let's do a very quick recap here. Kirsten, in one sentence, why are we interested in studying the atmospheres of exoplanets? I think one of the main reasons is habitability, but also so we can understand how planets form and evolve. Nice. Yeah, I think habitability usually rises to the top of these negotiations, but certainly there is a lot of other reasons to study everything in science. All right. Next, Sabrina, in one sentence, 
tell us what the main technique is that's used to study the atmospheres of exoplanets. Yeah, so the main technique that we'll be discussing a lot today in both of our astrobites is called transmission spectroscopy, where we look at the host star's light passing through the planet's atmosphere and look at these emission and absorption lines to tell us what molecules make up the planet's atmosphere. Excellent. Good job, team. Sticking to one sentence. So now let's do some new intro questions on the topics we're going to cover today. Uh, Sabrina, I think you're up first. What is a biosignature? Yeah, so biosignatures are extremely important for studying the potential for habitability of exoplanets. In the last JWST episode on exoplanet atmospheres, we talked a lot about biosignatures, and I think the name kind of gives it away, bio plus signature, so biology, meaning byproduct of intelligent or non-intelligent life. So, I mean, if you go on Wikipedia, there's a bunch of different biosignatures. There's, of course, all the mm -hmm. molecules that we use to study exoplanetary atmospheres. There's also technosignatures, which are a type of biosignature from intelligent life. So a lot of people using radio astronomy to study intelligent life look at very narrow band radio signals that might indicate some intelligence on another planet. Oh, interesting. But that's not the focus of today's episode. So we are thinking about biosignatures like oxygen, methane. So there was a paper in 2016 by Seeger et al. that narrowed down biosignatures, right? Because there's so many potential molecules that could be biosignatures. So this paper narrowed them down to molecules that are stable and potentially volatile. If you're interested in that, you can take a look at that paper. The volatility, I imagine, is important because they're reactive and they can do reactions that are necessary to sustain life. Like in our bodies, for example, noble gases are inert. They're not volatile, right? They don't react with anything. So they would be very bad to build life. Yes, that's a good comparison. Mm -hmm. Good point. One other tricky thing about biosignatures too is that even if they are volatile, they can't be created by geophysical processes and stuff like oh. that, which you'll have a lot of volatile things like CO2 that can be made from, you know, volcanoes and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, that's a really great segue into what the subject of my astrobite today is, which is pre-biosignatures. So those are biosignatures that are basically from conditions on another planet that might match those that could allow for life. So we kind of know what molecules were present on Earth when life was just beginning to form. There are two types of pre-biosignatures. There are the primary biosignatures, which are direct products or sort of feeding for the pathways that would lead to life. And then there are the secondary biosignatures, which are similar to the ones that Kirsten was just describing earlier that aren't biosignatures, but could be still indication for life that's beginning to form or could form on a planet. So these are abiotic processes like impacts, stellar activity, lightning, volcanism. So all of these could create molecules like hydrogen cyanide, ammonia, which could still be great indicators for life, but might not directly be from life or feeding mm. the process of life evolution on a planet. So to clarify, if you have a bunch of pre-biosignatures, you might eventually make life and then you would get biosignatures. Yeah, exactly. And there's also a lot of overlap, right? Like ammonia and methane are also biosignatures, but they can also be pre-biosignatures because they can be formed through 
like volcanism and other processes on the planet as it's forming. Cool. Next question. In a transit, what's the difference between the primary and secondary eclipse? The primary eclipse is when the planet passes in front of the star as we're looking at it. And then the secondary eclipse is kind of interesting. So it's called secondary or occultation eclipse. And they're actually really rare for planets to have. So they're not something that's very common, but they do exist for these really close in planets that are super hot, like for example, if you want to look up KELT-9b, it has a beautiful secondary eclipse, but KELT-9b is a hot Jupiter that's around 4,000 Kelvin. So it's almost, it's about as hot as a star. So basically when these planets are super hot, they orbit in front of the star and there's a pretty big dip. And then when they orbit behind the star, you'll get a shallower dip from the secondary eclipse. So is this all thermal emission then? Yes, it's basically just thermal emission, but really what you're looking at in terms of the transit is the light curve, so the flux. Mm. So that's what you're actually looking at, but it does correspond with temperature as well. So why bother with the secondary eclipse? It sounds like the primary is usually much better and deeper. Like, what's worth it about the secondary one? What is worth it about the secondary one? <laughs> Why do people want to study that? No, so the secondary eclipse is typically used for things like determining the temperature of the planet. So when you're thinking about these close-in planets, they're tidally locked, mm -hmm. similar to how the moon is tidally locked with Earth. So we only see one side of the moon. Their host star only sees one side of the planet. And so basically you can check to see if a planet has an atmosphere by the change in temperatures from viewing the night side, which is the primary eclipse, and the secondary eclipse, which shows the day side. So if you see drastic temperature changes, then you probably don't have good atmospheric circulation. But during the secondary, the star is in front of the planet. So how do you see it? So the way that you actually get that information is from the dip in the light curve. So how deep the light curve mm -hmm. is corresponds to basically the brightness. Mm -hmm. And because temperature also tells us how bright something is, that ends up changing the flux. So the temperature and the depth of the light curve are related, at least in terms of the secondary eclipse when you're comparing it to the primary. Does that make sense? Okay. You need to know how much the star's flux will dip to be able to know how much it will dip when the planet is behind the star. Like you need to know both exactly. in front and behind. Yeah, okay. I see. Yes, yeah. You can't get any sort of information about the temperature without that primary eclipse. Oh. So if you just have a secondary eclipse, that doesn't actually tell you anything about the temperature because the equation which we use to get the depth is quite literally the radius of the planet and just the transit depth. So the radius of the planet and the radius of the star. So that's what gives you how big the planet is. And then any variation from what you know the planet radius to be would be an indicator for the temperature. Does that make sense? Got it. Yes. All right, let's move on to these astrobites. First up, we have Kirsten, who is picking up good vibrations from a famous exoplanet. 
Yeah, exactly. So the astrobite that I'm going to be talking about is called Vibe Checking Trappist 1C using JWST to look for exoplanet atmospheres. And it was written by Junelli Gonzalez Quiles. And she's also phenomenal. She does exoplanet work too. So this astrobite is basically going to look at whether or not Trappist 1C has an atmosphere or not. And they figure this out using JWST, but I'm not going to spoil the <laughs> results just okay. yet. So to give you a little bit of background about the Trappist-1 system, so it's really interesting and it's probably one of the more famous systems that, I don't, I don't know, I've, I've just heard a lot of people talking about it and even before I was doing exoplanet stuff, I knew about tra the Trappist system. So the Trappist system has seven confirmed planets and they're all around an M dwarf star. So that's one of the smallest or is the smallest type of star and they're around 4,000 Kelvin or so. So really not that hot and as hot as that hot Jupiter mm -hmm. that I mentioned earlier. So all of the planets are on orbits of less than 20 days. So they're super close in. It gives some comparison for our solar system. Mercury is on an orbit of 88 days. And all of the planets that are orbiting it are super Earths. So this kind of goes back to the peas in a pod idea. And I think Sabrina talked about an asteroid by a few episodes ago that had the peas in a pod. Did I? I don't I remember. Thought that you did. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you didn't. I could have swore that you mentioned it. Potentially. Sorry, I don't remember. <laughs> but anyway, so super Earths are really interesting, especially for when we're thinking about habitability. I'm sure that it's going to come up in your bite, Sabrina, as well. Super yep. Earths. And these planets are about one to 1.8 to 2.6 Earth radii, and that upper limit of the 1.8 to 2.6 Earth radii is just because as you heat up a planet, it tends to expand if it doesn't melt. Mm. And so basically, they're just, they're like some of the smallest planets that we can actually observe right now. And so what they did, and the reason why they were so interested in the TRAPPIST-1 system is A, habitability, of course, and starting to look at these, these planets that, you know, this system that's pretty well studied already, and it's not terribly far away, so we can get some really good JWST data from it. So they chose to observe TRAPPIST-1c, so that's the second planet in the long list, the way that they're numbered are B, C, D, so on. But it's the second planet in the system, and it's on mm -hmm. an orbit of around two and a half days. So it's super close in. That's quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Question for you. Why did they go for the second planet? Why not go for the first planet or the sixth planet? So the first planet already has a lot of data available mm -hmm. to it, and it's well studied. And so they also have measurements already for the atmosphere, which it doesn't have an atmosphere. So the interesting thing with these planets is that when you have these really close-in planets, you tend to have, especially closer than 
two and a half days, you're going to have a hard time keeping your atmosphere. Mm. So here they're probably hoping to find something that has a bit more of an atmosphere because it's a little bit further out. And that little bit of longer period can make a difference in terms of how much irradiation that these planets are receiving. Mm Mm-hmm. And to follow up from your previous remark on how all of these planets that are really close in are tidally locked, is that true here as well? And I guess maybe you'll talk more about that later, but could that make it so like just one side of the planet has a really strong atmosphere and then it's like a lot less on the other side or? Yeah, so you can definitely have that. So these planets are all likely tidally locked for sure. TRAPPIST-1b, TRAPPIST-1c, 100% tidally locked. The other planets are also likely tidally locked as well, just because they're so close. But for example, even though Mercury's super close in an orbit of, like I said, 88 days, that one's not tidally locked. So obviously not in the same system, but yeah. So potentially you could have some, some differences for those further out planets, but I would bet that they're tidally locked <laughs> as well. But yeah, so they ended up looking at this planet, at TRAPPIST-1c, using MIRI. So if you guys haven't had enough or (laughs) haven't heard enough of JWST, MIRI is the mid-infrared. And this is the perfect wavelength if you want to observe CO2 or carbon dioxide Hmm. because it has a really strong absorption feature within those wavelengths. So what this study did is they first off measured the depth of the secondary eclipse. And like I said before, they were able to derive the dayside temperature for TRAPPIST-1c using, using the secondary eclipse. And that was around 380 Kelvin. Okay. It's not that bad. Yeah. No, it's not that bad at all. Isn't room temperature 300 Kelvin? says a hot day is 300 kelvin so it's yeah okay. 293 kelvin is actually room temperature oh you were pretty close nice oh so it is much ho- it's like a really 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 hot day <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i think that that might be more than a hot day but, <laughs> but hey it's not four thousand, so that's, yeah. that's something for the u.s listeners 380 Kelvin is still 224 Fahrenheit. <laughs> oh boy, okay. Still so. a little melty. But that's the day side, yeah. right? So we still have the yeah. night side to look out for. Or right around the ring of connecting day to night. <laughs> um, but to put this into context with other planets, so TRAPPIST-1b, the closer in planet, is around 500 Kelvin. And Mercury and Venus... Well, Mercury is 440 Kelvin, where Venus is 227 Kelvin. So it's kind of falling somewhere in between Mercury and Venus sort of range. You're talking about the equilibrium temperature? Yeah, the equilibrium temperature of Mercury and Venus. Because if you look up the temperature of Mercury or the temperature of Venus, it's quite a bit hot. I mean, Mercury doesn't have the same because of the lack of atmosphere. But Venus, if you look at the temperature it's, it's quite a lot hotter because oh, it yeah. has this thick atmosphere but it's like 780 or something like that with the that's not the equilibrium is that something right? like that it's yeah it's quite hot but the equilibrium is like energy in versus energy out mm-hmm. and does not consider the fact that there's a greenhouse effect exactly yeah right 
So, yes, that's a good clarification point. Like, without the greenhouse effect on Earth, we would not be very good. It'd be way too cold. Yeah, it would be super cold. So, once they had these temperature measurements, they ended up doing some modeling to determine what physical scenarios that could explain TRAPPIST-1C's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So, they looked at two limiting cases for this planet and how well the atmosphere circulates. So the first case is where there is no heat distribution between the day and the night side. Mm -hmm. And the second one was where there was global heat distribution, which would be expected from a thick atmosphere. So if you have a thin atmosphere, you're probably going to have stronger temperature differences between the day and the night side. And then for a thick atmosphere, you're going to have these atmospheric winds that'll kind of keep it all nice and warm and cozy. <laughs> like a heavy blanket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what they ended up finding was that TRAPPIST-1C doesn't have a thick and cozy blanket, unfortunately. Oh, oh no. no. I know. What they found from their modeling was that it either has a very thin CO2 atmosphere or it's bare rock, which mm. people refer to as planets with no atmosphere, basically. So this would end up matching what we saw for TRAPPIST-1b as well, which was basically found to not have any sort of atmosphere on it so it was basically indicative of just having a floating rock in space which is what we would expect for trappist 1b and i don't find this super surprising for trappist 1c as well but it does make for really interesting stuff not for the atmosphere people but for the rock lovers like me <laughs> <laughs> bring on the rock people this is really cool because with this, we can start to understand a bit more about the actual composition of the surfaces if there isn't all of that atmosphere to get in the way <laughs> of what we really want to see, which is the rock. Yeah, I, I'd rather have the opposite. I'd rather have all atmosphere, <laughs> no surface. Surfaces are so overrated. Difference in <laughs> research interests, okay? <laughs> you're an atmosphere person, so you're biased. <laughs> it's true, I am. I'm a giant planet atmosphere person. But yeah, so yeah, that's the Astrobite, and I thought it was great, and it looks really promising for me. Super exciting. <laughs> that's why you chose this one. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you, but I'm going to save it to the discussion because I think it'll be more fun if we open it up and talk about our feelings. My favorite heart-to-heart. -heart. <laughs> oh boy, I can't wait. <laughs> But thank you, Kirsten, for bringing that excellent astrobite. So sad there's no cozy blanket. But bear, bear rocks good, too, I guess, for a bed. It's great. Now it's time to notice the nice noises of nature and not become nauseated. That's right, guys. <laughs> it's space sound time. Why would we become nauseated? I'm always <laughs> nauseous, but... <laughs> <laughs> Me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing ends this week. Interesting. Close your eyes. The sounds are coming.
What do you think? Ominous, as usual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like you're making up these space sounds at this point. (laughs) Where would you find that? (laughs) I'm trying to think. I don't know. Yeah, it was really tough. The only thing that came to my mind when I was listening was some sort of wind. Or, I mean, it didn't sound like there was a really consistent orbital sound going on, but there was something circulating really quickly. I feel like if I were to guess something, which I have no reason to guess this, it would be some sort of magnetic field connected to something. But I have no justification for that at all. It's just a feeling, and I'm probably wrong. (laughs) Yeah, you're both pretty cold on this one. Wow. No. All right. This is a cool space sound. This is a sonification of actual sound. Wait for it. Let me explain. In 2003, a team led by Andrew Fabian at Cambridge discovered a black hole in the center of the Perseus galaxy using Chandra, the X-ray observatory. What they found is that you could see in X-rays oscillations in the material in the galaxy. And so they found these were pressure waves. So if you had a giant ear in this galaxy, you could hear these pressure waves moving past whatever planetary system you were on. Wow. That's so cool. The thing is, the period of the oscillations is 9.6 million years. So you have to be a really large-eared, long-lived creature to hear something like that. And so what they did 20 years later is they sonified that by raising the sound 57 octaves. So it turns out from 9.6 million years to like, you know, milliseconds or whatever the normal period of hearing is, It's only 57 octaves, which doesn't seem like that much, but that's a lot. And so the way that the sonification works is it's from Chandra. It scans around like a clock hand clockwise around the image. So you can hear the different pressure waves, the sound that would be coming from different directions in the galaxy. And according to the website, this is the first known sonification of actual sound waves though they're certainly not sound waves any human could hear. And this was, of course, produced by Chandra, NASA, in combination with system sounds led by Matt Russo. That's so cool. Wow, that's really cool. We've never had a space sound that's been sped up like this, like an actual sound in the universe that we could hear if we were this crazy alien creature that lived forever. (laughs) It's weird to think about because the, you know, the line is in space. No one can hear you scream, but apparently you can hear black holes scream. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's, uh, that's this week's space sound. Great pick. Well, yeah. Thank you. All right. Moving along. Now we have Sabrina to present an astrobite who is going to preview some of that pre-life that JWST (laughs) may discover. I love that. Yes, so my astrobite is called Signs of Pre-Life. Can JWST detect conditions for the formation of Earth-like life on distant planets? And the astrobite was written by Aldo Panfiki, and it's based on a paper that was published in the Astronomical Journal by Claring Bold et al. So this astrobite actually is kind of like 
turning back the knob in time from the astrobite that I did in the previous JWST atmosphere episode, because now it's not looking at biosignatures that we could potentially detect with JWST. It's looking at pre-biosignatures with JWST. So the whole point of this paper in astrobite is the question, can we detect pre-biosignatures with JWST? So how much of these molecules have to be present in an atmosphere for detection with, you know, like a reasonable amount of observation time? So less than five transits, let's say. Can't be looking at this thing for a year. That would be Mm. way too selfish JWST observation. (laughs) Yeah, they're not giving us that much time for anything. (laughs) Yeah. So it's really interesting, but actually there was a paper in 2021 by Swain et al. that claimed a detection of prebiosignature hydrogen cyanide, which is talked a lot about in this paper. Um, But it was disputed by at least two papers. It's like a bunch of papers that are just like, this was not a detection of this prebiosignature. But anyway, I guess that kind of gave a taste into the future of prebiosignature measurements. And this was from Hubble data. Now we've completely revolutionized how we're looking at exoplanet atmospheres with JWST. So obviously it's a whole new ballpark. Quick question. Sorry if this is an annoying aside. Hydrogen cyanide is extremely poisonous. How is that a pre-biosignature? Yeah, I mean, formaldehyde is a pre-biosignature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, weird. So, I mean, I think for hydrogen cyanide, they write about this in the paper, but there's different ways that these pre-biosignatures can form. For hydrogen cyanide, it's actually really important in the formation of early life. So the formation of adenine, which is a central nucleotide for life, it it plays like a huge role in that. Um, And it also can form, it's one of the, I think it's the pre-biosignature, at least described in this paper, that can form through the most avenues. So it's a primary and secondary biosignature. It can form through lightning, impacts, photochemistry, coronal mass ejection, Tons of different avenues, Mm. but you're right. It's confusing, right? Like hydrogen cyanide, ammonia, they don't seem like they would be important for life, but they actually are. To tack on, like we know that in Earth's history as well, it was not a pleasant place for us to be living for any sort of life, especially during the Hadean era Mm -hmm. period. What is Hadean? It's like the lava world kind of. Oh. uh, Yeah. The Hadean is an eon. Eon. There we go. I was like, there's a there's a proper term. <laughs> eon, era, period, <laughs> epoch, age, <laughs> all these words. But yeah, but somehow we got here. I was also going to add that as like, you know, another piece to this, like carbon dioxide is poisonous to us and too much, right? We need very little of that. And oxygen could be poisonous to us if it's at the wrong pressure. So like... Everything's poison if, you know, we want it to be. We're very delicate little sacks of water. (laughs) Did you know the way that we've evolved, we, like, our brains have evolved basically to know if we're suffocating due to, like, lack of oxygen. But, like, if you were to be in a place with a ton of carbon dioxide or something like that or carbon monoxide... Your brain doesn't even register that you're dying, so you wouldn't suffocate in any sort of way. You would just fall – like, that's why you just fall asleep because we weren't – we've never lived or we didn't evolve to be basically afraid of carbon dioxide, like our, our bodies, essentially. Interesting. 
I'm going to maybe correct you. So it's embarrassing. I did a bunch of research on holding your breath because I was writing holding that little breath. line about Sabrina freediving. <laughs> and so like the reason that like it's hard to hold your breath is because of CO2 saturation. That's what makes us breathe. You can hold your breath for like 30 minutes without having your blood oxygen drop below a certain amount, but the CO2 gets too high and then it causes an autonomic response. I think that you're right, Will. For sure it is for carbon monoxide. Oh, monoxide. Yeah, that's that's a different one. Yeah. Because that binds to the same receptors as oxygen, whereas dioxide does not. Mm -hmm. So monoxide is super dangerous because it tells your brain and your body you have air. Yeah, there are a ton of scuba diving horror stories where there'll be like a pocket of air or something and they're in a cave or something and they can't get out for whatever reason. And then they'll sit in the pocket of air and basically hallucinate and Whoa. all of this other stuff, but they don't feel like they're suffocating when they actually are suffocating. There have been a couple of really happy stories where the people are found, they're just kind of like delusional, hallucinating for a little while, and then, you know, they get found and whatnot. But yeah, it's kind of interesting. Also, Kirsten should have gotten that story because she's actually <laughs> like a crazy scuba diver. <laughs> Wait, for reals? Yeah, yeah. That's sick. I have a, like master scuba diver master over here i just have like the little lowly course that you get after doing stuff for two days and the last time i scuba dived but i had a panic attack and almost didn't go down so (laughs) i am not let's go scuba diving together yeah i would feel comfortable if i were with you kirsten i feel like you could console me are we saying an Astra Soundbites all-expense-paid trip to the Galapagos to go scuba diving? Oh Hell my yeah. gosh, yes. Carbon monoxide is also a pre-biosignature, surprisingly, though I can't tell you what that avenue is. But okay, so the point of this paper is that they want to use JWST to detect these pre-biosignature molecules. And they do this by looking at various types of exoplanets, of course, varying atmospheres. So they're simulating what the transmission spectra would look like for these different exoplanets and whether JWST spectroscopy can detect these pre-biosignatures from simulations. So again, transmission spectroscopy, the most important way to study exoplanetary atmospheres, is looking at that Mm. light as it passes through an atmosphere and getting sort of a fingerprint of the atmosphere, as people like to say, which has a bunch of peaks and dips and can tell you which molecules are present in the atmosphere. So for this particular paper, the pre-biosignature molecules that the authors focus on are, again, hydrogen cyanide, sulfur dioxide, carbon monoxide, methane, ammonia, formaldehyde, to name a few. And each of these, confusing as it might be because these all seem really poisonous, these do have an effect in how early life forms or are a byproduct of some sort of other indication of early life whether that be through volcanism or um, stellar activity or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the authors model planets with atmospheres rich in hydrogen and helium with low mean molecular weights and where the host star is smaller. So M-dwarf stars like Kirsten's astrobite was discussing. And this is because previous studies to detect trace molecules like the prebiosignatures are have shown that hydrogen-rich atmospheres with low mean molecular weight and puffy big atmospheres, 
So those heavy blankets are much <laughs> easier to detect trace elements in. So that corresponds to larger scale heights. Scale heights are the distances that pressure in an atmosphere will decrease by a factor of E. So they look at a bunch of these different worlds, and I'll go through them now. So they look at a Hycean world, which is an ocean planet with a hydrogen atmosphere. They look at an ultra-reduced volcanic world, so lots of active volcanoes. Remember, active volcanism can be a, another pre-biosignature um, and is important in the formation of life. Then one with the highest scale height, which is a post-impact world at two different timescales after the collision. Then they look at super-Earths with a thin hydrogen envelope. And then lastly, they look at an early Earth-like world, which is based on TRAPPIST-1e, so a bit further back from Kirsten's astrobite, but huh. still in the TRAPPIST system because it's one of those famous habitable planets. And they actually don't expect much because it has such a low scale height, but of course we know Earth best, so they still wanted to include it in their simulations. They then add realistic noise from JWST, from the star and the instruments, and they use, of course, Bayesian statistics to try to detect the molecule abundances. So Bayesian statistics just allows us basically to determine a probability for the detection of all of these molecule abundances given our models and simulated data. So they determine how much of these molecules have to be present in an atmosphere for a detection, again, with a reasonable amount of observation time. And what they find is that, yes, these pre-biosignatures are detectable with JWST. And there are a couple surprises, actually. The ones that are detectable are the ones with the large scale heights. Well, that's what you would think, right? So actually, one result contradicts this. Oh. Interesting. Yeah, so yes, they did find that the Hycean world with huge hydrogen atmosphere, all the pre-biosignatures are detectable with JWST. But they also found that the ultra-reduced volcanic world, which has a super large scale height, had one of the worst prospects for detection because it was absorbing methane and hydrogen cyanide in its atmosphere due to however their simulation was set up. You, you mean to say that it's be, th those pre bio signatures are destroyed yeah exactly in the reducing atmosphere exactly and they also okay. found that okay. the hydrogen super earth with the smallest Higgs scale height did show some promise for detection of biosignatures remind me what the scale height was like the minimum scale height that they were looking at that would that was promising yeah, so that was the hydrogen-rich super-Earth. So it has the smallest scale height, but actually really good detectability. Do you have the number yeah. of how big the scale height is? The smallest scale height that still had good detectability was 38 kilometers for the super-Earth compared to what they expected for the Hycean planet, which had a scale height of 78 kilometers. For what it's worth, Earth is a little under 10 kilometers. Jupiter is about 30 so we're talking about really puffy planets with very extended atmospheres when we're talking about, I mean, 78 is like nothing we have in the solar system. Even the one that's in the ballpark, what do you say, 35? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The super Earth with that, like they said it was a thin hydrogen atmosphere. But yeah, I guess that is still puffy compared to the Earth scale height that they use, which is about eight kilometers. Eight. Okay. Yeah. And you said that they had on the high end, it was 70 kilometers. The high end was the 
post-impact planet with 160 kilometers, so 10 mega years post-impact. Wow. I wonder how it could hang on to that thick of an atmosphere. Obviously, they don't go into that, but I imagine that it wouldn't be for a super long time because that's pretty, that's pretty puffy. So the difference in scale heights between the 100 kilo year and 10 mega year is only about five kilometers. So I'm guessing the atmosphere is relatively well preserved. Yeah, but it's interesting that they consider it at two different time scales post impact. But the main takeaway here is that many of these have detectable pre-biosignatures? Yes. Other than, as they kind of expected, the Earth-like planet would be very difficult. Mm. You'd need even up to 100 transits to detect certain biosignatures. So these are sort of limits and actually probably leaning towards optimistic results because, as I think we've talked about before, there's lots of clouds and complicated hazy stuff in atmospheres that could make these molecules much more difficult to detect. So the main takeaway is that for these light but high atmospheres in these optimized planetary systems, pre-biosignatures could be detected with JWST, according to these simulations, which is still really exciting. With a reasonable number of transits, not a hundred and some odd. No, within, so less than five transits. Oh, okay, nice. That's not that many. Very nice. Yeah, this is an interesting astrobite as well. I have some questions. We're going to save it for the discussion (laughs) because it actually relates nicely to Kirsten. So we'll bring them together. (laughs) Thank you, Sabrina, for presenting that. Of course. Let's do our one-sentence summaries. Kirsten, you go first. If you like planets without all the atmospheric fluff, JWST can confirm that TRAPPIST-1C is definitely a vibe for you. (laughs) (laughs) what a vibe you guys know that song it's a vibe okay anyway it's a great song what about you sabrina what's yours mine is not quite so vibey but when the conditions are right simulations of varying types of exoplanets predict that jwst will be able to detect pre-biosignatures furthering the revolutionary exoplanet potential of jwst very nice. I feel like we got to start with pre-pre-biosignatures. Just got to get way early. Like, can you detect even planets? I'm not even sure if it's detectable. The rock. Yeah. Is there anything in space or is it just a black void? Are galaxies even real? The Big Bang. That's that's a pre-pre-pre-pre-biosignature. <laughs> All right. For reals, though. Kirsten. I had this question when you were presenting yours, and it kind of also relates to Sabrina's, but if they knew, they didn't know, but if they had a suspicion, perhaps, that they would find a null result, they would find no atmosphere on TRAPPIST-1C, how did they get the JWST time? (laughs) Okay, so my response to this question is going to be a little bit spicy. Hit me. (laughs) But... For these really close-in planets, it seems like either people know and are in denial or that they have no idea or underestimate the power of the actual star. But a lot of the time you'll see in the literature basically people kind of advocating for these atmospheres on these really close-in planets However, when you start doing the math on these things, it doesn't make any sense. So I 
bet they probably thought that there may be an atmosphere, whereas, like, from this different subfield, I know that there (laughs) probably won't be an atmosphere. (laughs) So I think this is probably coming from me being kind of adjacent to this and being, like, Mm. not in the field and not doing what they do. But it's interesting whether or not they were to find a thick atmosphere or not because a lot of the time these planets that have day and night sides that are that close, you can have irradiation on the day side to where you can have like a rock vapor sort of atmosphere where it's just vaporizing the rock and that's the actual atmosphere. So it could very well have a rock vapor atmosphere, but because those elements are so heavy it's going to be really, really low scale height. So interesting. It's still, it's still interesting. So they could have, they could have gone about it saying like, yeah, like maybe there's an atmosphere that's puffy enough, but also even if we don't find that, we'll probably find this. It's one of those foolproof proposals that you can't really poke a hole into. It's interesting if you get one and interesting if you don't. Mm -hmm. Mm, Darn, that's, that's clever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, kind of leads me to the next question, which is, in both of these cases, I would argue that these are null results. I mean, in, in the case of Sabrina's astrobite saying that we cannot detect pre-biosignatures on an Earth-like exoplanet, we'd have to end up with some kind of planet that's not really like Earth at all. And Kirsten, like, no, you don't have some exotic atmosphere. Sorry, guys. Like, these are both still pretty good, interesting papers. So, I'm personally like happy to see null results published and discussed because we should have a culture in science that null results can be just as useful as whatever the opposite is, positive results. But I don't know. What do we think? I actually would disagree with the fact that mine is a null result because, I mean, it's a null result if all you care about is Earth-like planets. But I think the point here is that any life would be exciting doesn't really matter what type of planet it's on and i don't know i think the fact that we're sort of pushing deeper and deeper into what the potential for habitability could look like means that obviously it's going to get harder and harder and the detections Mm -hmm. are going to be more difficult but it's still a really exciting time and even having a detection on like a volcanic planet maybe there's some really cool microorganism but we'll have some sort of analog in our solar system to compare to or something and say wow even i don't know microorganisms are cool too just any sort of life that's a good point i appreciate that thought kirsten what do you think i'm going to pull out my soapbox and i'm going to stand on it really quick go for it i think that we need to make sure that it's like a thing that we value in science as well because If we don't, you could run the risk of getting papers where people make up or mess with the data because they need to have a result in order to publish because we have to Mm -hmm. publish papers to do well in this field. And so I think having null results are useful and they give you kind of a starting off point for any sort of study. It doesn't really matter it's whether it's exoplanets or, you know, something different. It gives you a starting off point for the next project or next person that comes along in maybe 10 years. And you've already, like, said, hey, we did this observation or 
we did this modeling stuff. We didn't find anything for, you know, whatever it is. And then they can say, hey, yeah, we approve, we improve on this work and we have, you know, X, Y, and Z that we can contribute. And maybe theirs is a null result too. But eventually you'll have this stack of literature. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then when someone actually finds something, it'll be a pretty cool result because you'll have like a, a long history of people trying, which I don't know. I think that it's worth something. I don't know if scary is the right word to use, but I feel like it is a bit scary that there have been so many papers on potential biosignature detections like phosphine on Venus or the pre-biosignature paper that I talked about today, which are published. Like the authors are wholeheartedly saying that they believe in this result. And then there are like so many papers following up, challenging the results and basically saying all of this is not real and there's no detection. I don't know. I mean, it happens in other fields too, like cosmology, Mm -hmm. but I think it seems maybe it's more publicly happening for biosignature detections. I, I for one, think this is a great thing because I think this shows the world that science is incremental and it's always questionable, right? Nothing's proven. It's only capable of being disproven. And so we, we have to challenge, you know, just because it's published, just because the authors are respected, just because they double down on their detection of phosphine doesn't mean it's real. And I think there's a difference between challenging the methods versus getting new data, perhaps. But yeah, I, I, I think it's a good thing. There's a a phenomenon called publication bias or sometimes called the file drawer effect where people who find all results don't publish it. It's not published worthy. And so all the published literature on a topic is then heavily biased in favor of positive results. So by looking at an aggregate of the literature, you come away with the impression that every time this experiment occurs, the detection is made. Whereas, you know, 90% could be null detections, but they're not published. So I think we should be very supportive of people that are brave enough to publish null results and stand behind them because I think they're doing a great service for the community. You're welcome. All of my papers <laughs> have been null results. <laughs> hey, I got a big fat null result coming up and it's going to be great. So, <laughs> Upper limits, guys. We love a good upper limit. <laughs> Next question. What amount of pre-life detection is actually enough to get excited about. Like, let's say we detect all the pre-life we could ever possibly imagine. That doesn't really, that doesn't add up to one life. (laughs) I feel like this is where follow-up detections come in handy because like if you detect one pre-biosignature molecule, that is exciting in itself, but then maybe you need to observe like a hundred transits and maybe that's the only one that you detect. But if you're detecting like a bunch of these pre-biosignatures that were discussed in this astrobite today, for example, I think that's when you could say, okay, this is really interesting. Like we need to study this as much as we can. And it's probably the case that there is some sort of, at least again, microorganism (laughs) developing on this planet. I wonder what the purpose of a pre-biosignature is because if it's to try and say, hey, there might be life forming on this planet right now, that could be exciting. But 
if it's to say what's happening here on the surface could be something like basically looking at just how planets evolve in general, I think that's really interesting. Mm. So at least for me, and I'm sure that it's super interesting to other people, but the idea that some life may be forming, but we won't actually be able to check for, you know, millions of years. So I'll never know the answer isn't quite as exciting to me as like an actual biosignature or actually just being able to learn about how these planets evolve in general. Do you ever think that we're going to spend like decades, you know, really scouring the edge of the signal to noise cutoff on James Webb data and find like a couple of molecules and some, maybe some pre-biochemistry and this is going to be great. And then someone's going to like find a living bacteria on Mars and it's going to be like, okay, this was all pointless. Like we have actual life. Who cares about all this pre-life stuff? But if we find life on Mars, wouldn't it just be from us not decontaminating our stuff? I mean, I Ugh, still think it would be exciting. But... Real, like it's real not from us, you know? Or like, I don't know, we detect trees on another planet, you oh, know? That'd be cool. We once did an astrobite on that. If there were trees on a planet, could you see their shadows? Anyway. I feel like this gets philosophical when we're talking about biosignatures and habitability. Astrobiology obviously is like the intersection of all these fields, but also there's the philosophical question of what do you do when you have a detection and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. I guess that's more important for intelligent life, but it's still really interesting. We'll have to send the USS Enterprise to make first contact. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we will conclude episode 78 of Astra Soundbites. There's more air out there. If you want to read the astrobytes we talked about today, you can find the links in the show notes. If you didn't hear the first Air Out There episode, go listen to number 77. You can find it and all the others at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Audible, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Cosmos.